Welcome to It's All Political on Fifth and Mission. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking to the second gentleman of the United States, Doug Emhoff. Before he was married to Kamala Harris, Emhoff says he was just a guy from L.A. The vice president was California attorney general when they got married in 2014. Even after Harris was elected to the Senate in 2016, Emhoff lived in relative anonymity as a political spouse. That ended when Joe Biden tapped Harris to be his running mate in 2020. Emhoff was thrust into the limelight. The 58-year-old has become a national figure, not only as the first male spouse of a U.S. president or vice president, but as the first person of Jewish faith in that position. As he's grown more comfortable, he's also become a national voice speaking out against anti-Semitism. Now, with Biden announcing that he'll run for re-election, Emhoff will be in the national spotlight again, as Harris likely takes on a more prominent role in the campaign. I'll be real with you. This is a bit of an unusual episode. We don't talk about a lot of public policy or politics or the administration's position on issues because Emhoff isn't in on those conversations. But I want you to hear from him because he can share what it's like when someone who's just a guy from L.A. gets thrust into the public spotlight. I also want you to hear from someone who quit his career to support his wife's political career. He jokingly describes himself as arm candy. Plus, as you'll hear, Emhoff is refreshingly candid and unjaded. We talk about the painfully awkward run-up to his first date with Harris and how he deals with all the political attacks on his wife. Emhoff was in the White House when we spoke. He's been a Californian for much of the last 40 years, but we started by talking about his childhood in Brooklyn and New Jersey. I was born in Brooklyn, and Dad was a, a woman's shoe designer and uh, really creative and skipped me, went right to my daughter. <laughs> and um, he worked in Manhattan and moved us out to the suburbs in Jersey. And that was our life. So it was a very kind of, you know, suburban East Coast upbringing. Everyone's door was open. If you wound up, uh, you know, at, at someone's home, it was like that parent's responsibility to feed you dinner. You make sure you did your homework. It was this really nice collective. And then... In the middle of that, my dad got a, a new job in L.A., also in the shoe business. Southern California, I say it was like the fast times at Ridgemont High, you, you know, life uh, just with the Jeff Spicoli characters and the OP shorts <laughs> and the Zuma Beach. And I'm this kid from Jersey who had a leather jacket and was thrown into that. Kind of took to it, though, uh, pretty quickly and fell in love. It was the Haida Fernando Mania. So this was, uh, sorry, San Francisco sports fans. Yeah, the, talk a little we'll, Dodgers we'll and Lakers, yeah, but we'll overlook that. Imagine yeah. coming in, you know, it was in early 81. So you had Fernando, you had Magic Johnson, and just fell in love with Southern California. And, you know, we were reformed Jews who weren't, we went to a temple in New Jersey. I got bar mitzvah, but, you know, not terribly religious. And my parents, though, were pretty political. And I didn't realize that until I got older, when I realized a lot of the families were pretty conservative politically. My parents were like, my mom was out there, you know, marching for women's rights and talking about abortion rights when I was a little kid. Wow. And she was very progressive and very, you know, about freedom and equality and justice and standing up for others. And I think it, it got into my brain, even at a young age, about standing up for others and hating bullies. And she said, if there was a bully in there, you stand up for those kids who are getting bullied. And it turned into, wow, lawyers. I see these lawyers on TV fighting for people. And I just got in my brain at a young age, I wanted to be a lawyer. So 
you know, things financially weren't that great when we moved in early 80s. So I actually was basically working full time at a variety of jobs, whether it was waiting tables, uh, shoe salesman at a department store, whatever I can do. Then I was going to, uh, I went to Cal State Northridge. Mm -hmm. It took me five plus years to get the credits to graduate, but I was really focused on my grades. And I still had my goal of law school. I was able to get into USC Law School. And by that time, I was able to go full time all the way through. And that led to my uh, legal career in LA as an entertainment lawyer, yeah. which I, I did for many, many years, very happily. Loved it. Did that until that day two and a half years ago when Joe Biden called Kamala Harris and asked her to be on the ticket. Let's get you how you met the vice president, because uh, you, you were married before. You had two kids with your first wife, who you're very close to still. Yes. But the way you met the vice president, she was the, the attorney general of California at the time. And it's not like, you know, the AG could go on uh, Tinder to find dates. Uh, <laughs> you were set up by, by a mutual friend and you decide to text this person who you were set up with while you're with at a Laker game with your buddy. Uh, walk a, us through how that went. This was the most unexpected blind date in history because it was a client meeting. So this couple who turned out to be very dear friends of Kamala came into the office for legal services. And it was one of my partners was their lawyer. There were some issues on the case. He brought me in to you know kind of help with the client. After the meeting, her friend, it, it, there's a lot of dispute as to who said what, when, but essentially, are you single? I have this friend. I think you'll be great. And it was Kamala Harris. I said, Kamala Harris, the, the attorney general? You're Wait, you're trying to set me up with Kamala Harris? She said, yeah, I think you'd be great. I said, all right, well, here's my number. And then that night, I was at the Laker game. It was one of my good friends who was in from D.C., and you know, we had a couple of beers and I was telling him this story. He starts cracking up. And then during the game, the text comes in from her friend saying, okay, she's willing to, you know, say hi, don't screw it up or else you're fired as my lawyer. <laughs> and so <laughs> send this text something like, hey, at the Laker game, you know, just awkward, checking in, okay. And then she sends a message like, oh, Lakers, you know, Kobe, Shaq, woo, okay. Um, I said, well, great, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you. So the next morning, you know, I, do you remember that movie Swingers when John Favreau literally <laughs> yes. the worst voicemail in history? So think that, yes. that's kind of the mindset. <laughs> Hi, uh, Nikki. This is Mike again. I, I just called because it sounded like your, your machine might have cut me off when I when I uh, before I finished leaving my number. Anyway, uh, and you know, and also, um, sorry to call so late, but you were still at the Dresden when I left, so I knew I'd get your machine. Anyhow, uh, uh, my number is two one. I leave this long rambling voicemail that's it's and it's also like eight in the morning. You're never supposed to call anyone that early, and you know, she, of course, she doesn't answer, but. There was something in the voicemail that she thought was charming. And it was literally that one lunch break where she had like 20 minutes because she's working so hard doing all these things. And she she called back and we wound up talking. We had just laughed for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And then it turned out she was going to be in L.A. that weekend. I said, all right, well, we're going out to dinner. And uh, we, we met for dinner. And I say it was love at first sight. And we've been together ever since. That's such a great and real, real story. I love that. What were those early days like as a as a political spouse? 
So the the good thing, Joe, back in those days, even though she was Kamala Harris, Attorney General, then Senator, you could still have, compared to now, looking back, a fairly normal life. And especially at the beginning, when we were, you know, getting to know each other and, and, you know, starting to share our lives together, you know, we were able to do that. So we could really get to know each other and spend the time together. You know, she met the kids. We were starting to just integrate. But we were able to do that in a fairly normal way where we can spend the time together and really get to to know each other. And then once she was a senator, you know, I was spending more time in D.C. and things started, you know, ramping up. So it was one of those things that over time, luckily, we were able to build the building blocks of our great, you know, really healthy relationship. So it was able to really deal with what came next. But it's one thing being senator, as you say, in Washington, but then you're part of a presidential campaign, her presidential campaign, then on the presidential ticket with President Biden. What was most uncomfortable about that to you? Well, think back to August of 2020. We were in the height of COVID. You know, everyone was going through that horrible experience together. I had kind of got stuck in D.C. It was one of those things in March, that exact weekend when everything shut down, I decided to take a chance and, and go to D.C. and get one more weekend there. And then we were actually planning to come back to L.A., and, but that was the weekend when everything shut down. So we were in our apartment there, busier than you can imagine as a lawyer, especially because when COVID hit, their clients needed all kinds of advice. So you're in that kind of thing from March until August. And then that day in August, that's the next day that my life changed on a dime completely to go from, you know, COVID life in my sweats and maybe a a collared shirt and doing all my legal work on Zoom and going through the vet and she's a senator in the other room and doing all these things. And then we get the call and the next day I'm up on that stage in Wilmington. I'm thinking like, oh, my God, I'm in a suit again, let alone all these cameras, let alone oh, wait, my wife's on the vice presidential ticket. And then they explained to me, yeah, you're, you're going to be doing this full time. Here's your schedule. Here's your team. And your first event is this afternoon. And two and a half months later, 200 events uh, live in Zoom and many, many interviews. And then that was it. And then once we got the news uh, that we won, I'll break some news here. I was the one who filmed the famous, we did it, Joe. Uh, I happened to <laughs> kind of... There see, you go. Get some photo yeah, credit there, I mean, some belated photo So to go that. from that you know, go. Zoom live to all of a sudden, my wife is now the first woman vice president in a two and a half months. What were you not ready for? So again, you, you met me before. I, you know, I'm a, yes. just, you know, I say I'm just a guy from LA. You're just a guy. Just a guy. I, that's, that's the description I use. <laughs> just when I just, describe just it. a yes. guy who was living his life. And so yeah. to go from a very private life of doing your thing to then everything is is public. You, you've got the apparatus of her being vice president, which you've, you've seen her when she's come to town. It's it's just a lot of stuff. security and then your everything is public so you realize very quickly there's no small moments and i got that at the inauguration when you know to go from the transition which was pretty big to the actual that day when you see the full extent of all the apparatus around the vice president president myself and it's very overwhelming so there's a pretty now i can laugh about it video of literally the first thing it's like get out of the limo go around the car and walk up these steps, you know, 
President Biden, First Lady, Vice President, and then you are on the left. I'm like, got it. And I, I totally froze. I didn't have it. And there's a video, <laughs> and they made a lot of fun of me. I didn't know where to go. So first I'm on the wrong side, then I'm in the middle, then I'm like bouncing around, and I finally get into position. I made it up the stairs, and one of her staffers came up to me and said, that's not going to work. You need to, you know, get in the game. You need to listen. It's the big time now. Pay attention to these briefings because the world is watching. And that was it. And ever since then, it was like it just kicked in. And I pay attention to those briefings. But do you realize there's been a few times here and there where, you know, you're, you're on camera and you just realize every single moment is public. And that's one of those things you just have to, you have to recognize. Doug Emhoff explains what criticism of Vice President Kamala Harris really gets to him and what doesn't after this short break. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. What would you do differently this time around? What are you thinking about doing differently this time? Yeah, great question. And in a lot of ways, it's going to be totally different because, you know, right. remember no Biden-Harris won, high to COVID, a lot of it was Zoom, and a lot of our public events, it was a joke, it's me screaming at a bunch of cars or, you know, very socially distant, and I was a newbie. So I think the campaign will be much different. It'll be a very traditional campaign when we're out there meeting people, we're doing rallies, we're doing events. The other thing is most people know who I am now. You know, we've had two and a half, three years in the administration. I've now a lot more experience talking to people, both in speeches and, and on media. And I actually now know all those things you mentioned about, it is important to take care of yourself. It is important to work out. It is important to get a good night's sleep, drink drink the water, all the, the blocking and tackling of taking care of yourself. Better believe it. I'm uh, I'm doing a lot more of that now that I see what it's like to, you know, to be on a schedule like this. You have uh, some areas of focus now, as you say, over the last couple of years. May is a Jewish American Heritage Month. You were the first Jewish spouse of a U.S. president or vice president. You got very emotional when you visited the infamous death camp at Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. Your ancestors a couple generations back are from Poland. What's it been like to share your faith so publicly? How have you sort of readjusted on sharing your faith so publicly? It was a thing I didn't expect, honestly, to, to be doing. I thought being a man, the first man in this role, would be the big deal. And it, and it for sure has been, and we can talk more about that. But, you know, be, me coming in to this role really unfortunately, and I wish I didn't have to do this, but... Coming into office at that time was really with the rise of this anti-Semitism all over the world, this rise in hate. And again, not just directed towards Jewish people, but directed towards all, all types of folks. And it really felt incumbent on me to, to step up and speak out and live openly and publicly as a Jew and do the things that us Jews do from the mezuzah on the door at the residence to having a menorah in our window, to publicly celebrating a Rosh Hashanah at the White House and all these things. And by the way, none of that things have ever been done before. And just doing them you know, joyfully, openly, proudly 
just to show that I'm not afraid and trying to show others to not be afraid and to fear the, the feedback everywhere I, I went, especially at the beginning when we started doing these things. I was getting feedback from people who'd say, you know, I'm, I'm a Republican, I didn't vote for you, but I'm a Jew. And to see you in that role, I got emotional. I never thought I'd see this. And the more I've spoken out, I met 80-year-old woman who said, I I've lived in fear my whole life, and now I've seen you putting yourself out there. I'm not gonna be afraid anymore. So you realize it's, it's a massive responsibility, and it's something I, I recognize and I take very seriously. And the more I do, the more I wanna do. And again, I really wanna broaden the message that it's we have to push back against anti-Semitism, but also hate. And then what's the counter-programming? We need to spread the joy, spread the love. We need to bring faith together, bring cultures together. But going to Europe, Joe, was so overwhelming, so emotional, because I didn't know the story of, of those ancestors until basically we got there. And then I learned there that many of the family members were murdered in the mm -hmm. town square. They were shot. Uh, and I didn't know that. And I got to see the home where my parents, grandparents lived and they got out. But it was so overwhelming, emotional, then to come back and share it with my 85-year-old father and 83-year-old mother, just incredible experience. And once you see something, once you see the effect it has, then you're really able to talk about it. And that, that trip, as, as, as tough as it was, it was really a life-changing experience. And as a role of the first, second gentleman, we're, we're all protective of our spouses and our partners. And, and, you know, your partner has received a lot of public criticism, you know, as all people in the public uh, I do. Uh, how have you learned to process all the stuff that is said about the vice president? And what do you see your, your role as in, in these situations? Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because none of this affects her because she's like, hey, I, I came up in, in San Francisco and, you know, th this is nothing. And she knows that's part of being in the public eye. She knows also, you know, being the first woman, being the first black woman in this role, we know there'd be heat and she's tough and, and she certainly not only can take it, but she, she thrives in it. For me as a spouse, you know, I love my wife and I'm a very protective spouse. I love my family. And, you know, nobody wants to see anyone in their family get attacked. So you have to kind of, you know, put that aside and realize this is politics. She's the vice president of the United States. It's almost like, who cares? We've got a job to do. We've got to focus on all the things that the American people need. We've got to focus on our economy. We've got to focus on the fight for rights. We've got to focus on all these things that we get to do in these roles. And that, that's what's paramount. And the rest of the stuff just kind of falls off you. And who did you go to for advice about your role, given that it is new in terms of gender? I mean, I'm sure Jill Biden, she's, she's been there, done that. But is there anyone else who you went to to, to talk about the, the role you have now? Well, definitely I've talked to Jill, Dr. Biden, our first lady, about her experience as a second lady. I've, I've talked to Mrs. Pence. I talked to Tipper Gore. I've mm -hmm. talked to some other, you know, high-profile political spouses. The core of any political spouse is you're really there to support someone you love who's put themselves out for, for office. And I meet spouses all the time, and I love meeting you know, if, if a woman is, is running for something or just elected and they bring their 
spouse along and say, I ran for office because of, of you, because you're supportive of Kamala. And, and that's what, for me, really? wow. that's what it's all about. So when I, when they, uh, uh, you may ask, what do you want your legacy to be? Which I've been asked a few times. And I say, I want more Kamala Harris's out there. So I want people to look at me and say, hey, that Doug Emhoff guy, he was supportive. He stepped away from his career that he loved to support the first woman vice president. And if he can do that, and if she's able to do that, maybe, you know, I'll throw my hat in the ring. And I want to ask you, I found an interview that I'd never seen before where the vice president describes the first time she met your mom. Did she, and she, did she, you know this story, right? So the first time I meet my mother-in-law, she puts my face in her hand. She looks at me and she says, oh, look at you. <gasps> you're prettier than you're on television. Mike, look at her. No. <laughs> Do you remember that, that that first interaction, and how do they how do they all get along? Perfect imitation of her Jewish mother-in-law saying that, <laughs> and it was one of those like "Welcome to the family." <laughs> <laughs> but she, Kamala, loves family. I have to say, you know, you you know her. Yes. She loves her family so much. And right now, when time is at a premium, there's so little we can do. It's any time we can, you know, spend with family. She will take that, and you know, the more we can get them to visit us, she fusses over them and cooks for them. She's the vice president is a homebot, is a little bit of a homebody that I think she's a she she likes likes her her home time, loves loves to cook. She she loves her family. Meanwhile, she's out there being Kamala Harris uh, as our, our vice president on the world stage, and I'm I couldn't be prouder of her, Joe. This is your second gentleman. Thank you so much for being on It's All Political on Fifth Admission. Thanks again. It's great to see you virtually. I hope to see you real time again one of these days. I'd like to thank you for listening and hope that you and your family are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank second gentleman Doug Emhoff for being my guest. Thanks to the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, when your wife wants to show you her impression of your mother, it's all political. On Fifth and Missions.